Now, Edward R. Morrow and the voices of General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Senator Robert Taft, Walter Ruther, Charles E. Wilson, Rita Hayworth, and more than 40 other voices in the news. Plus, opening night at the circus and the people of Milwaukee in the 17th performance of Hear It Now, presented tonight and every week at this time. This winning of a little battle in Korea had better not lull the American people to sleep, because I think that we stand in the face of terrible danger and maybe the beginning of World War III. So many programs all about the circus, Ringling Brothers, Born and Babies program. Don't forget your peanuts. So many programs all about the circus. And we say to the boys in Wall Street, the free labor movement has forgotten more about the practical fight against communism than the Wall Street boys will ever know. Hear it now. The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real and are presented as they were recorded in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. Here is the editor of Hear It Now, the distinguished reporter and news analyst, Edward R. Morrow. The spring rains are still falling in Korea and turning the hard earth of the winter into soft, bad fighting ground. But the 8th Army in force was pushing bridgeheads across that political moat which is called the 38th Parallel. It was the week of our 58,000th casualty, and it was also the first week in more than a month in which the Korean story was able to compete with the crime hearings and the RFC hearings in a new civilization in which a Costello would seem to be better copy than a Ridgeway. Fortunately for the nation's morale, there was no report from the front as to what the troops along the 38th thought of current developments on the home front. Actually, we are now contending with three North Korean divisions or a total of from 15 to 20,000 enemy that will be cut off by our planned operation tomorrow morning. The voice you just heard is that of Captain Ted Timberlake of the 187 Regimental Combat Team as he briefed his men prior to a recent jump behind the enemy lines in Korea. While the statesmen were debating the advisability and legality of crossing the 38th, there were tactical decisions which had to be made to secure the safety of our troops along the parallel. This unit, some 3,300 strong, went into an enemy area of over 15,000 Chinese. Overwhelming odds. Listen to Larry Kane of Waltham, Massachusetts. So there are 15,000. Well, there was that one pl first platoon of Easy Company who took that hill uh, last month with uh, 41 men that's... That 41 against 900 is roughly 18 to 1. Tomorrow we only face somewhere between 4 and 5 to 1. That sort of puts the odds in our favor. That was just before the takeoff of a parachute drop. Now you're about to hear one of the rarest recordings ever made in combat. Your ear will be tuned to a microphone strapped to the chest of Robert Lesher, a combat reporter for the Voice of America, as he stood in line with the paratroopers in a flying boxcar, as he moved up to his position by the jump master and out into space. Listen. There goes the crew member back to open the rear doors. Now a great glow of light flashes in here as these doors are open, gaping to the 
right sunny air in the back. Red signal. Uh, the jump master's coming back on my side. Stick master checking the equipment, uh, going from one to the other. We're now waiting for our green signal. Everybody okay? Men are shouting, everybody okay? They all have a hold of their static cords. We all have our static cords attached onto the cable. And in about a half a minute, we'll get our, our green signal. I just wish it were over. That's my one wish now that it were over. Where it's a matter of seconds before we'll be in the air. You know, we're moving forward, one right after another. Here we go. Jess is rushing on ahead of me. We're pushing ahead. We're going to go right out. One right after another. Left foot first. Left foot first. Here we go. I shoot open. I'm open. Thank God it's open. I'm floating in midair. I hope you can hear me. We have orders to look up, to see that our chutes are all right. It was a, ter a terrific wrench. The shadows over the rice paddies below were wavering, waving side by side to side. Great black discs. As we get closer, they get larger. All these green chutes, a few of them white, drifting down in a gentle breeze that's now spinning me backward, forward, backward, forward. Now I must reach up, reach up and pull my risers. Is it terrific, Joe? Not too painful. I don't know whether my equipment is still working, whether or not you can hear me. General Matt Ridgway, an old parachute hand himself who dropped in Normandy, isn't allowed to jump with his new command but expects his generals to jump with the troops. Here is Brigadier General Frank S. Bowen, just after a recent jump, briefing the correspondents at his headquarters. The enemy is still on four sides of them, and the general's query to the newsmen, are there any more questions, would almost appear to be some kind of a cue for the Chinese. I casually, considering the operation and the area, were minimum. Jump casualties were light, and casualties from enemy... Action. We're likewise light. Anybody, any other questions that they'd like to ask? That was close. Yeah, it was. They've got it spotted on their map. I think they have. It sounded like an airburst, that one back there. No, that was a ground burst. Anybody, anything else? The Korean War is now in its tenth month. In certain areas, it is becoming almost a permanent installation, with movie theaters, PXs, rest camps, delousing centers, and even radio stations. But up front, the relaxation is, as always, scant, and most of the entertainment self-styled. Well, what a time, my Lord. Oh, what a time, my Lord. Oh, what a time, great God Almighty, now what a time, the music you hear comes from beside a 155-millimeter gun as some of the boys of a Negro field artillery outfit attached to the Koreans put their gripes and homesickness to music. 
bomb to think the jab. I really do have my family time. And by the way, so we can whip all little. Wake up, folks, and buy a farm. I help to the boys across the pond. My mother going down, won't bend in knees. The sun going down in dreadful seas. 1941, the Second World War had just begun. The news from Korea was a combination of optimism on the tactical front, where our gains were good, and serious overtones of ominous developments on the strategic front. There was constant talk of a major communist counteroffensive aimed at our widening front. There was also talk that Russia itself, for ten months now a chief protagonist in the Korean War, without committing a single company to combat, might be on the verge of using its own troops. Yesterday, Representative Joe Martin read a letter he'd received from General MacArthur. The general wants to use Chinese nationalist troops to open a second front in Asia. Says we're fighting Europe's war in Asia with weapons, while diplomats in Europe are fighting it with words. The general thinks politicians are interfering with the conduct of the war. On Wednesday afternoon, Speaker Rayburn of the House, a usually cautious man, seldom given to alarm, asked for the floor and gave this grim warning to his colleagues. With 30 enemy planes coming over Korea, with the massing of troops in Korea and Manchuria, and not of all of them Chinese communists by a great extent, I say to this House in all earnestness and in all seriousness that it is my firm belief that we're in greater danger of an expanded war today than we have been at any time since the close of World War in 1945. This complacency, this winning of a little battle in Korea had better not lull the American people to sleep because I think that we stand in the face of terrible danger and maybe the beginning of World War III. The next day, the president refused to comment on Speaker Rayburn's statement, merely said he was a truthful man. Opposition spokesman accused Rayburn of whipping up an artificial crisis to drive the draft bill through Congress. On the floor of the Senate, where the initiative for the past few weeks had also yielded to the hearings, seats were again filled and records bulging as the great debate on troops to Europe reached its climax. But it was a week of speeches, amendments, debates, resolutions, and votes which taxed the flexible democratic system of this republic. On Saturday, in a speech in Indiana, Senator Robert Taft, the Republican leader, said this. We face today and and this Monday uh, a vote on the basic question as to whether or not Congress is to surrender to the president all power over foreign affairs. The president, President Truman, has made claims for authority in the foreign field beyond anything that any president has ever made, even beyond those made by Franklin D. Roosevelt. Roosevelt wrote uh, distinctly in, in the, to, the, to the premier of France in 1940 that he could not furnish military assistance without the approval of Congress. What the administration's foes in the Senate wanted was a clear-cut understanding that troops cannot be dispatched to foreign lands without the consent and approval of the Senate. If the chief executive could not legally be prevented from acting, his opposition in the Senate wanted it known that they wished to be consulted. The resolution to limit troops to Europe, to the two divisions already there and four more to go, was offered by a Democrat, Senator John McClellan of Arkansas. Mr. President... I offer an amendment to the pending resolution. The amendment, Mr. President, reads as follows. Quote, But it is the sense of the Senate that no ground troops, in addition to such four divisions, 
should be sent to Western Europe in implementation of Article III of the North Atlantic Treaty without further congressional approval. It was a strange vote. A Democrat offered the resolution, and a Republican, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, vigorously opposed it. Mr. President, to my mind, the McClellan Amendment endangers the security of our troops abroad. It endangers the security of the whole country. It tends to diminish the influence and power of the Senate. The McClellan Amendment is particularly dangerous because it will make many persons wonder whether, after all, our system of government, which has lasted so many years, can meet the challenge of modern times, the challenge of this undeclared war, or whether it has been made so rigid by artificial legalistic interpretations that it is becoming a millstone around our necks. Senator Herbert Lehman, Democrat of New York, was also opposed to limiting the president's power. I feel that the action taken by the Senate in adopting the amendment of the senator from Arkansas, Mr. McClellan, is dangerous, and that it will tie the hands not only of the executive, but also of our responsible military authorities. I believe that to compel the president to obtain the approval of the Senate will not only cause embarrassment, but may very seriously affect the security of our nation and tragically jeopardize the survival of the other free nations of the world. Senator John Brecker of Ohio said this. There is a loss of confidence in the President of the United States because of his past actions. The people do not want to have their Congress abandon its responsibility, abdicate its duty, and turn that responsibility over to the President of the United States alone. And Senator Russell Long of Louisiana was one of the few Southern senators who supported the administration. Mr. President, I certainly hope that this amendment will not be adopted. It seems to me that what we have had going on for the past three months on the floor of the Senate is the best argument against the amendment. If it should happen that more troops were needed in Europe, the president should have the authority to go ahead and send additional troops without having to come to Congress and to wait the result of a Gallup poll while we spend three months in debate so as to give every senator an opportunity to be heard in detail and to make five or six speeches on the subject. At some time, decisions must be made. We have been fortunate that the communists have not moved while this so-called great debate of three months has been taking place. On Wednesday, the Senate voted, 69 to 21, to ask the president to seek the approval and consent of the Senate before sending more troops abroad. All this after three months and millions of words. Neither side is satisfied, but both claim victory. Kenneth Wherry, the Republican whip in the Senate, whose original resolution had been superseded by a dozen others, claimed a great victory for his side. Senator Wherry. The Senate's action on troops for Europe carries out the purposes of the resolution introduced by me last January the 8th, which has focused the attention of the Congress and the country upon the great issues involved. While I am personally gratified, the important thing is the Senate has struck a blow for preservation of the principle of the Constitution that Congress, representing the people, is master of the military establishment and not the president. And the Democrats claim the resolution is no more than the wish of the Senate. Senator Tom Connolly called it a great Truman victory. So did Senate Majority Leader Ernest McFarland of Arizona. By an overwhelming vote, the Senate approved the sending of four American divisions of ground troops to implement the North Atlantic Treaty. The Senate thus gave a clear warning to Joseph Stalin 
that the people of the United States are determined to stand by their allies. No one can say how much damage the months of debate and confusion has caused in Europe among our allies, 3,000 miles nearer the threat of Russia. And the situation remains almost as it was before the debate began. Senator McCarthy of Wisconsin managed to get in an amendment saying that Spain and West Germany should be brought into the Atlantic Pact. This is all merely advice and counsel and does not have the force of law. While all this torrent of wordage poured forth from Washington, the man at the other end of the line, with the toughest job of his life ahead of him, officially got down to work. General Dwight D. Eisenhower talks to a news conference. The only reason for me being before you today is this. This morning at one minute after midnight, it was decided that I should take over formally and officially the responsibility of command in shape. I haven't... uh, uh, the advantage that a commander usually has in the, when he's handling operations in the field, of coming to you with some long record of a, uh, uh, a success and victory or operations in which I can get up and uh, make myself look good by a very long tale of how deeply responsible I was for all these nice things. Here we're talking about a job of work. It's serious work and it's hard work. General Eisenhower talks of congressional delay and the real heart of our problem in Europe. The question is, how much effect will any further delay in this uh, congressional action in the United States have upon the spirit and the will to resist uh, in Western Europe? I know this only, ladies and gentlemen. This problem on which we have collectively embarked is specifically one of the heart, one of confidence. There is in Western Europe and in the United States and in the free world sufficient force sufficient power and a sufficient array of resources to take care of ourselves and make sure we are not attacked. As long as we are peaceable, do not become aggressive, and as long as we are animated by some basic desire for security toward a common purpose. If we will unify ourselves in a common understanding, this thing can be done, can be done promptly. So anything that seems to me to indicate a reluctance to get into this pool of cold water, pull up to our necks, is something that I deplore because I believe that we must all show one to the other, the United States to France and France to Holland and Holland to us and so on, that we are ready to do our part to preserve freedom. I I sometimes think, ladies and gentlemen, I repeat this thing uh, ad nauseum. You must get weary of hearing me say it but I believe it completely. If our hearts are in this thing, it can be done. General Eisenhower and his growing staff are already hard at work. Every day, Monday through Friday, the high brass and the low brass file into classrooms for their daily French lesson. Mon père a une grande maison. 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 Bon. Uh, Captain Saunders, s'il vous plaît, répétez la même phrase. Mon père a une grande maison. 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 Non, c'est le Z. Z. Maison. 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 You see, when the S is between two vowels, you pronounce it like a Z. Maison. Non, Z. Maison. Non, c'est Z. Z. Non, Z. Z. 
Une grande maison. Une grande maison. Bon. With General Ike's new team quickly adjusting to the new life and language of their new headquarters, a lady from Europe of some fame was orienting herself and her children to life in the United States. Rita Hayworth, the wife of the Ali Khan, was back in the United States. I'm thrilled to be back home again, and I'm most grateful for the very warm reception that you all have given me. And, of course, I'm most anxious for my children to see America. And, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is, is go out and get myself a hot dog. This week in America, an age-old custom changed. It was announced that on the recommendation of high authorities in the field of education, and with the approval of draft director Hershey and the president, certain promising college students would be deferred from the draft in order to permit the fullest possible utilization of the nation's technological, scientific, and other critical manpower resources. What this means is that if you can pass an aptitude test and receive high academic grades in your studies, you will not be drafted, you will be deferred. This is something new in an America which has never tried to decide who should carry a rifle on the basis of his intellectual horsepower. We wondered how the youth of our nation were responding to this new regulation. We decided that rather than sampling opinion at random all around the country, we would take one college as a sort of capsule case study of how the news hit the draft eligibles at our colleges. We went down to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and asked for reactions. First, Dick Murphy, a member of the student government. If the federal government is going to defer boys because of their scholastic ability, I feel they have sort of an obligation to see to it that those boys who have a high degree of ability uh, will not be kept from going to college merely because they cannot afford to pay for it. In other words, some series of federal scholarships, perhaps. Here is Roy Parker, editor of the Tar Heel, the student daily. We think the measure is a, a very good stopgap idea until universal military training can uh, function correctly. Uh, if it were permanent, we think it would make colleges havens for any moderately intelligent draft dodge who could get enough money to come to college. Wilma Jones, a senior. Speaking for co-ed, the general opinion is that if the particular man you're interested in has a good chance of passing the test and <laughs> staying in school, it's a good thing. But if you're not quite sure about that, well, it, it brings in a different angle. Carl Snavely, one of the most famous football coaches in the country. I feel that it is a very wise provision, a very important one for the benefit of our educational institutions and I think eventually for the country as a whole. Our football players will always be ready to answer any call that's made upon them, but I do think it's important that our athletic program in general be saved and it might not have survived a wholesale depletion of the, our schools and colleges. Now the president of the University of North Carolina and former secretary of the Army, Gordon Gray. I must say very frankly that it gives me some concern because I fear that people will conceive of it as a, a development of an intellectual aristocracy. And I'm afraid there will be a lot of anti-high education feeling. Barbara Lind, a junior. I think it's a good thing. I think it's very important that the fellows be allowed to finish their education before going to the service if it is possible. I believe that fighting for our country is a very important thing and fighting for the things that we have here in America, but education is important, too, and people have a hard time getting along these days unless they do have an educational background, I believe. 
And another point concerning the plight of the very brilliant student who just can't afford to go to college. Here is Oliver Cornwell of the faculty. Well, it's my opinion that it's discriminatory that uh, it allows boys probably to attend college, uh, the determining factor being uh, the economic setup that provide the resources for them to go to school. I, uh, I think probably it would be all right if everyone had equal opportunity, not only academically, but in terms of the economics of the thing. But deferring college students was just one problem confronting colleges this week. The question of admitting Negro students to graduate law schools was up in South Carolina. In a recent speech, Governor James Burns of South Carolina stated his position. The court should uphold the doctrine of separate but equal facilities, 50 years old doctrine, instead of ordering that segregation be abolished. Should the Supreme Court decide this case against our position, we will face a serious problem. Of only one thing can we be certain, if I know the people of South Carolina. South Carolina will not now nor for some years to come mix white and colored children in our schools. Dr. Ralph Bunch, Nobel Prize winner and UN official, had something to say about the governor's attitude. Anti-Negro bitter enders, like anti-labor bitter enders, persist, of course, particularly in the South. But they are making a last stand. It is shocking, surely, now to find James F. Burns joining Herman Talmadge in the forefront of them. I say shocking not because it was Burns governor of South Carolina, but Burns, former Supreme Court Justice and Secretary of State, who recently declared, if the press quoted him accurately, that he would have his state go so far as to abandon the public school system altogether, rather than bow to any decision of the federal courts which would call for an end to segregation. Who indeed could be in better position than Burns to know how costly are such undemocratic declarations and practices to our foreign relations, to our international reputation for democracy, to our prestige and our leadership? There was another school in the news this week. In a little red schoolhouse in a pine grove in Sudbury, Massachusetts, near Boston, the roll was called for one of the last times. Good morning, children. Good morning, Mrs. Bennett. Let's have the roll call. Soon, this trim little one-room schoolhouse will cease to be. It's running out of pupils. It'll probably never be destroyed because it was here that a piece of poetry was written. For many Americans, it was the first verse they ever learned. Here it was that Mary and her little lamb went to school. John Rolston wrote the 12 lines of rhyme for Mary, born 145 years ago. As you all know, children, our little school is closing in June. And you also realize that the Redstone School is famous the world over. And for one of the last time, let's recite the little poem that we say each week. You may stand. 
listening to Hear It Now, CBS's weekly document for air based on the week's news. The program continues immediately after this pause for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Program 17 on Hear It Now, a full-hour review of the week's news told in the actual recorded voices of the men and women who make the news. Once again, here is the editor of Hear It Now, Edward R. Morrow. We live today in a world of perpetual crisis. Our standards are down, our perspective is hazy, and we find ourselves increasingly filled with doubts, fears, and suspicions. As we search for the magic formula, something to grab onto... We can't escape the realization in a world so grotesquely distorted that it is a very fine thread indeed that separates the real and the make-believe. Times have changed, and we've been forced to change with them, for better or for worse. But this week, the circus came to New York. It's changed, too. There are more girls and fewer animals, more spectacles and fewer sensations. But the fat lady is no thinner, and the midgets are no taller. The clowns are still funny, and the acrobats still daring. For a couple of hours, at least, you find yourself in a world of your own making, bordered only by your own dreams and imagination, and that's as it should be at the circus. Fred Allen once said, if a circus is half as good as it smells, it's a great show. This, then, is the smell of the circus on opening night as our recorders roamed over Madison Square Garden. So many programs all about the circus, Ringling Brothers, Barnum Bates program. Don't forget your peanuts and Cracker Jacks for the show. Introducing baby Irene, 540 pounds of her. A quick look at the sideshow first. I weighed 12 pounds. Now I'm 33 years old, weigh 540 pounds. And you boys looking for a real domestic wife? That is, one that would keep you nice and shady in the summertime, warm in the winter, why just look me over. Curtain call for the circus group. Going up. You have plenty of time to get up. You can't get it off, tear it off. Fine. What's your hurry? What am I hurry? I'm, I'm going all night now. The elephant's in the way. Backstage, the horses get ready, get too. You all set here, Saddler boy. Now, let's take a minute now. Baker, cut that chewing. Who? Henry. Don't be nervous. Henry. Don't get nervous. An intimate moment. when you go up there. Oh, of course I wouldn't want to lose my costume. Oh, you won't lose your costume, but you'll have to break your neck. This is it. Back 
stage, everyone's excited. Honey, you bangy. Honey, you bangy. All right, girls, come on, pick it up. Let's go. One, two, three. Get them up. The horses also get them up. Stop, stop. There's a horse missing. But the show goes on. You hear many languages as the girls await their cues. The lighting must be just right. Now, 50th Street out. 50th Street out. Give me the overhead ring. The overhead ring. Uh, 50th Street is out. 50th Street out. Out, out. 50th Street out. Number one, 50th Street out. Wait till after they take your bow before you get your pull. Those who man the trapeze nets have a sense of timing, too. Wait a minute now. Get ready now. Get ready to get your pole. The act I is over. I thought you were going to hold it for, for a minute. You know, it was just a short hold. But when you got the weight, then I held my breath. It'll work out all right, though. Not only Americans fly through the air. Ich bin auf dem Trapez. Wie wir bin der first time hier in America. My wife is auf the Trapez upstairs. I am like a clown. Be very glad for we been here in America. Backstage again. You bangy. In this circus, three different types of elephants. Uh, the elephants that only speak German. Three elephants that only speak French. This is producer John Murray speak. Anderson. And the German elephants and the French elephants uh, don't get along at all. It's like humans. The you elephant trainer. Them, but you can't have too many favorites. You see, because they're all elephants. You can't love too many of them. You've got too many to worry about. And they make nice pets, but you can't take them home and sleep in bed with them. You're with the seals in the center ring. Go hide now, Patty. Pat, come on now. Go hide now, Patty boy. Come on now. The circus doctor. This job is just one darn thing after another. Yesterday I had a horse with a cold, and I gave him 60 grains of aspirin. This morning a leopard came down with sinus trouble. I can't work. It hides my makeup and my face, see? Right. Backstage problem. No, thing. I can't mug. You see, I want something that I can take this hat off. The personnel director is I hear seasoned. a lot of complaints at the circus all day long. It's very good to go home at night and not have to straighten anything out with my wife. The clowns move in. I'm a clown. I do specialties by myself. I work mostly by myself. In fact, I work on human psychology. But I mean by human psychology, you see, I don't force myself on the audience. They have to watch me. When they go home and talk about the show, they never forget the little damn clown they see. More clowns got ready. Oh, oh, all right, I'll do that. I'll try it anyway. Next clown number. All right. I'm not worried about the finale. I'm only worried about making this change. You go along here. In the front, all the way around the track. Midget auto drivers are brief. All the way around in the center. That's the tag back so I can see. Well, you can't get blasted it. They're off, and found Emmett Kelly is about to take over. Everybody has their problems and worries. I have my own problems. Many things happen to me, too. But I just can't let everything stop for that. Many times I go out to work, I don't feel good. Something has happened at home, or something has happened someplace. I worry about it, but I cannot let that get me down. 
We're all children in this world together. Let us all be happy. I've got to go. The number's on now. I must go in. While the crowds roar, the finale approaches. You're backstage. It's a mad rush upstairs for the last number. Finale, people. Two to three minutes. Let's go. Finale. Remember her? You bangy. You bangy. The big show is almost over. Back in the dressing room, the girls take stock. The stagehands and riggers are tired, too. Seven o'clock this morning. We've been working all day. I take the rings apart uh, four or five times each performance, and then I put them back together again. But in spite of everything, there's something about the circus. My name is Tiny. I drive a circus truck. A lot of fun. I don't know why, but it is. Once it gets in your blood, it's just there. That's all. There's nothing you can do. You have been backstage at the Ringling Brothers' Barnum & Bailey Circus as we recorded opening night. Two men who did not graduate from college and are nonetheless vital cogs in our critical manpower resources were again in the news this week. Charles E. Wilson, who never went to college, became head of GE and who now runs the nation's mobilization effort. Mr. Wilson, on the state of mobilization. Already, America is measurably safer. Industry is tooling up and deliveries are beginning to come off the production lines in steadily increasing quantities. We have begun the expansion of our productive capacity and among our goals are the capacity to build 50,000 airplanes and 35,000 tanks a year and 18,000 jet engines a month. Walter Ruther this week was re-elected president of the CIO Auto Workers Union said that he was not and would not be a candidate for the U.S. Senate in the event Michigan has a vacancy, and went on to say this about unions and communism. The boys in Wall Street are beating their chests. How they're prepared to bleed and die in the fight against world communism. I say that anyone who knows anything about the problem of fighting communism can look all over the world today. And they will have to arrive at the conclusion that we have arrived at. That the free labor movement today is democracy's strongest bulwark against communism. And we say to the boys in Wall Street, the free labor movement has forgotten more about the practical fight against communism than the Wall Street boys will ever know. Because we are fighting it where it counts. But as far as we're concerned, this is a two-front fight. We'll fight the commies on the battlefronts, and we'll fight the profiteers on the home front at the same time. That's our position. The television cameras were off the crime investigators. But the senators continued to work behind closed doors, writing their recommendations for new laws. 
and in hundreds of cities, the lesson was being learned. Telephone lines were being yanked from any bookie joints. Some gambling places decided it was wise to close down, at least until the heat is off. Slot machine merchants were encountering new, non-mechanical difficulties. Casual policemen were becoming singularly alert. Grand juries were digging a little harder, questioning more witnesses. And in the city of Milwaukee, one of the Kefauver Committee's most interesting witnesses, gambler Sidney Brodson, announced publicly that he was thinking of getting into a new business. The police had ordered the telephone company to remove his phones. The Brodson case came to the committee's attention through the efforts of the Milwaukee police chief. And during the hearing, while FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover was on the witness stand, Chairman Kefauver felt compelled to spell out credit to this officer. I do want to say that this uh, police chief, uh, Halkin, P-O-L-C-Y-N, worked up this case uh, for the committee, and he done a great job. And FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover said this. The chief of police of Milwaukee has been one of the outstanding men of the country. Paul Seen runs one of the most crime-free cities in America. Gambler Brodson did his business by phone to other states. For many years, Milwaukee a sprawling, highly industrialized big city, 13th largest in the nation, has been winning national prizes, 26 in all, for her crime prevention, her health conservation, fire protection, and traffic safety records. But it took Senator Kefauver and Director Hoover to call the nation's attention to the facts. For the remaining minutes of tonight's program, you will hear the people of Milwaukee and the officials they hire explain how they eliminated most gambling and how they keep their city relatively crime-free. This will not be a case study by criminologists, nor an investigation by radio. We are neither students in the field nor investigators. We, like you, are citizens with a sort of Kefauver hangover, vitally interested in this phenomena and how it came to pass. If you listen with us, you will hear what we heard in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, April 1951. You are now standing in bottle shop C of the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company, brewers of the beer that made Milwaukee famous. You can see 19 bottling and can lines which produce a total of well over 5 million bottles and cans per day. For more than 50 years now, Schlitz has been making Milwaukee famous. Near Schlitz, you can find Blatz and Pabst and Miller, four of the seven biggest brewers in the nation. But beer isn't all of Milwaukee. There's the big Alice Chalmers factory turning out tractors. And made in Milwaukee means the world's leading manufacturers of diesel and gasoline engines, outboard motors and motorcycles, wheelbarrows and leather gloves and work shoes and even padlocks. The biggest veal packing center, the greatest barley market, the eighth industrial city of the country, and a record for crime prevention and detection among the best in the nation. We're in Milwaukee to concentrate on the police department, who runs it and how well it runs. The best place to start is at the morning show-up, the line-up, they call it, in many other cities. You're mingling with 75 policemen and detectives. You're searching the faces and the figures at the morning inspection of last night's prisoners. They march in to await the questions and commands of the superintendent of the Bureau of Investigation, Inspector Rudolph Glaser. Step over to the center of the platform in front of the microphone. State your name. John Pierre. How old are you? 21. Where do you live? In Chicago, Illinois. How long are you in town? Uh, 30, 35 days. What are you arrested for? I have something about tapping on till. I don't quite understand it. I How much money did you get? I don't know. 
I was intoxicated at the time. The subject is arrested on a charge of larceny. He entered the restaurant as a customer at an opportune moment, went to the cash register and tapped the till for $4.20. Been arrested before? Chicago. On what charge? On forgery. Turn around and face the wall. Turn back this way. Now walk to the end of the platform. Turn around and step out. This scene is repeated in every big city in the country. Only in Milwaukee, it's a shorter session than in most other police stations. The overnight prisoners list is smaller. Last year, for example, only 181 persons were arrested for violating gambling laws in this city of 633,000. For comparison, there were 142 burglary arrests, and 173 were arrested for forgery and counterfeiting. The statistics are very good, and few challenge Milwaukee's record. So we start at the top and ask young Mayor Frank Zeidler, how does Milwaukee do it? No city government can be any better than its people are. Without the foundations of a good moral standard in the people of the community, there cannot be good local government. The city of Milwaukee, these past 40 years, has not been bothered by any major waves of crime. We have had sporadic instances, but because the law enforcement agencies are alert and attuned to the public interest, these instances have not developed into large problems which face many other communities. You walk down North Plankington Avenue and ask some women how they like their city of Milwaukee. Well, I lived here almost 30 years, and I, I don't know, I just think it's okay. I suppose the thing I like it for, best of all, is because it's home. My husband's working out here, and we're making a good living, and that's why I think Milwaukee's okay. Well, I think it's a very fine city. It's clean uh, in its own way. It's very safe for the female population. We could improve our um, traffic and our parking facilities. I also do think we could do more in our entertainment line, getting uh, clean, uh, high-type entertainment, which I think our city lacks. You're listening to the big finale at the Empress Burlesque, the only one in Milwaukee. less than a third full. Milwaukee prefers other forms of entertainment. The beer tavern, there are a few nightclubs, the movie houses, the two legitimate theaters, the city's 51 social centers, the great new auditorium, the arena, the family party, the friendly visits, and the early quiet of the big city. The man who keeps the city's streets clean of crooks and gamblers is police chief John W. Polseen, a veteran of 35 years on the force, five years and eight months as chief. In his big office in the safety building, we ask the chief one of the best in the country, J. Edgar Hoover, calls him, to tell us about the department's attack on gambling and how it was done. The Milwaukee Police Department has curtailed and almost entirely subdued the various gambling activities. Uh, this was accomplished only by placing the gambler under constant surveillance, following him wherever he goes, not giving him any rest, and wherever he may establish himself, wreck his place and arrest him wherever possible. What little gambling there is in the, at the present time in the city is receiving just this type of vigorous treatment. But one man can't do this alone. It needs a lot of policemen, 1,336 of them in Milwaukee, to do the job. In some cities, some cops are corrupt. How about this city, Chief? The rank and file of the department 
owe their loyalty only to one thing, and that is their oath of office to enforce all of the laws and ordinances. There is no one person or group of persons that can bring any influence to place a man on the force or to remove him from office or cause his transfer to another station or to exert any other influence. Not every policeman can boast of this awareness. But there's more to Milwaukee's attack. Chief Paul Seen again. The traffic officer, if he knows of a felony being committed or if he observes any violations of the law, including gambling, he must take immediate action and he also must report the fact to his commanding officer. Every uniformed member, from the captain down to the patrolman, together with the members of the detective division, are equally held responsible for the enforcement of all the laws, and this means all. That's an angle. In many cities, the cops on the beat won't get mixed up with a gambling arrest, and the vice squad officer doesn't bother with robberies. Chief Paulsen is Milwaukee's fourth chief since 1888. He holds his job for life or until he gives cause for removal. He was appointed by the police commission. Its members were nominated by the mayor, confirmed by the city council. There are enough barriers to prevent any quick switch of chiefs from one mayor to another. Down the hall from Chief Paulsen's office, you meet First Deputy Inspector Hugo Galen, in charge of the vice squad for the past 15 years. He tells you what the squad has done to break up gambling. First, how to discourage the customers. We've stationed police officers in front of gambling houses and picketed the same as you would at a strike, questioning all the people who wanted to enter. And in that way, you discouraged the businessman, the doctor, the lawyer, and the man who had lots of money to spend in gambling houses from frequenting these places. Sometimes police want to get into places and the gamblers want to keep them out. What then, Inspector Galen? The gambling houses put up uh, steel barred doors with large bolts going into the floor. And to offset that, we got what we called Big Bertha. It's a ramrod, weighed about 450 pounds, took four men to handle to break down these doors. When we couldn't get through the doors, we would go through the wall. Every city has politics, even Milwaukee. Some people think it's Milwaukee's election system that keeps the city in good shape. Robert Gordon, head of the American Veterans Committee, Zeidler Post, talks about elections. The city of Milwaukee is unique in relation to the system of electing its municipal officials, the nonpartisan election system. Responsibility is based upon an individual's own merit. It eliminates the possibility of political machines. And anyone who has lived in a municipality in which a political machine has gained hold knows what a problem it is to eliminate that. Milwaukee ticks because we don't have a proposition of political machine. We elect our individuals and we defeat our individuals on the basis of their platforms and in their own personalities. So we have another explanation. And then we run into an historical approach from a veteran labor leader who goes way back to figure it out. We listen to the AFL's regional director for Wisconsin, J.F. Friedrich, as he tells us about the type of people who first settled in Milwaukee. Many of them were Germans who came over because of political persecution in Germany and uh, proceeded to build a local government embodying a great deal of idealism. Many were socialists, and when later the socialist group got control of the city of Milwaukee in 1911, among the many people whom they put into responsible positions were labor men 
And that is true even today. That, I believe, has kept up the interest of the people in their government and has led to a government which does try to respond to the wishes and protect the best interests of the common people. Now we go to the source of much knowledge about many people. The men who usually know just about what there is to know about any town, the taxi drivers. Reporter Ed Scott asks a simple question. Do you know any place where I can place a horse bed? No, I don't know of any place in the city of Milwaukee for the past three or four years that you could make a horse bed. I don't know of any place for the last eight or nine years. Well, I don't know of place in Milwaukee where you could at all. We're now at the plant of the Milwaukee Sentinel, one of the city's two newspapers, and we sit beside the desk of publisher Frank Taylor. Tell him our mission and hand him the microphone. Milwaukee is singularly free from the operations of organized criminals and racketeers. Much of the credit belongs to a vigilant and resourceful press which exposes and fights any attempt of gangsters to get started. With the press and public solidly behind our capable law enforcement agencies, Milwaukee continues to be America's most crime-free large city. We track down veteran reporter Cy Rice, who knows his city well, and ask him what it's like to cover the news at the police station. The police beat is dead in Milwaukee because there is so little major crime. Milwaukee police reporters are driven by boredom into playing cards, even canasta, and sometimes to drink. The city is too pure for my taste. So, in too pure Milwaukee, we look in on the police court. Judge Harvey L. Nealon has two persons charged with vagrancy before him. The arresting officer states the facts in the case. Your Honor, at 1.30 Saturday afternoon, March 31st, we made an investigation at the hotel room 101, where uh, the defendants, uh, the room which the defendants occupied, upon questioning a female defendant, she is without employment, without funds, and no place to stay. She ran up a bill for the amount of $38.70 there. Uh, questioned the young man, he's a local boy, and he is without employment and without funds. Have they been living in the same room? Uh, he was there in the capacity of, of a visitor. Uh, Millard, how long did you know this boy? Since November. You've never been arrested before. Uh, this boy, see, you're, you're Ralph, you're 26? And did, uh, did you tell Millard about your previous arrest record? You just got out on parole last October. I was working up until last week. You're not working now? Why not? Every plant in town has a sign-up saying men want it. The 26-year-old boy isn't working today. It's because he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't want to work. You haven't any money now at all, have you? Well, why not leave me uh, sentence you 90 days under a Huber Act, and the sheriff will get you a job, and then you'll spend your, your you work daytimes and spend your nights in jail? That, uh... By now, our microphone has gathered up most of its voices for you. But there's a disturbing unanimity. Isn't there anyone in this city of 633,000 people with a gripe, critical of something about Milwaukee? There must be. There always is. We're advised to look up Frank Kirkpatrick, a wealthy builder. We find him, and we tell him that he's been described to us as the opposition in Milwaukee. Well, you flatter me by calling me the opposition. Now, it's actually true that I have considerable respect for a mayor's competence. But he sometimes forgets that he's just the mayor. And I think the police chief, uh, that is Chief Polsine's all right, too. 
By and large, we sort of run our own city. We don't often let the mayor or the common counselor or newspaper editor or a commentator either uh, tell us how to run it. We have many of the faults and virtues of a small town. If you want to know the truth, we do a lot of talking. And there, I think, is the secret of Milwaukee. We don't call it talking so much in Milwaukee. We call it coffee clatching. It's one reason we have so many taverns, I guess more than any other city in the country. And like most people who get together and talk a lot, we sort of resent anyone who puts himself above the law or tries to. So in Milwaukee, that law violator gets reported promptly to the police. And if the police should fail to do anything, well, the police would get talked about. I've heard them get talked about. And we get action. But if an alderman or the fire and police commissioners or the mayor or somebody didn't heed the talking, they'd get talked about too. And come election time, somebody else who did heed the talking would probably go in office. We find that even our single opposition agrees with what other citizens of Milwaukee have told us. We've heard a lot of explanations and theories for Milwaukee's low crime and gambling rate. We've been told, keep the chief out of politics, protect the cop against pressure, and the lapses will be few. We've heard how it was the early settler and socialism that set the city straight, that it takes a nonpartisan government to assure honest officials, that a vigilant press helps keep the people alert, that you may have to batter down doors and shame the offenders, but that good government creates a tradition and you expect it to continue. Milwaukee doesn't have all the answers, and the situation in your city may be quite different. But in Milwaukee, we found what it was that J. Edgar Hoover meant when he said, One thing is certain. In those communities where public opinion is enlightened and aroused, crime is at a minimum. In such communities, crime has not become entrenched. It does not enjoy unholy alliances with those in public office. It does not have the protection of the very forces who have a sworn duty to exterminate it. Law enforcement is only as effective as the citizens demand. That is fundamental. The ultimate responsibility for a crime-free community rests at home. You have just heard Program 17 in the CBS series, Hear It Now, a document for ear based on the week's news. Hear It Now is edited and produced by Edward R. Murrow and Fred W. Friendly, and a CBS staff which includes Edmund Scott, John Aaron, Jesse Zausmer, Irving Gitlin, and Joseph Werschberg. Portions of the program originated at WTOP Washington, WEEI Boston, WGAR Cleveland, WBT Charlotte, North Carolina. WMSC, Columbia, South Carolina, WBBM, Chicago, WISN, Milwaukee, and The Voice of America. Combat recordings were made in Korea by CBS correspondents John Jefferson and George Herman and by Armed Forces Combat Correspondents. Special acknowledgement is made to the Communications Center at the University of North Carolina. Edward R. Morrow can be heard over most of the CBS stations Monday through Friday at 7.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is Olin Tice speaking.
Combat casualties and the need to staff hospitals and training centers have put a strain on the nursing staffs of the Army, Navy, and Air Force. If you are a registered nurse between 21 and 45 and are not now in a key civilian position, you can volunteer for the military nursing services. Write or wire the Office of the Surgeon General, Washington 25, D.C. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.